about hopefully what might be next for us in our own Christian lives. I think it would be a very brave person that ever says as a Christian, I think I've pretty much seen everything that God can do. Uh, it'd be a very brave person that says, um, I, I don't really think there is any more. I think, you know, I think I've probably plumbed the depths of God's love. Uh, I think I've probably experienced all of God's power. I think I've had my eyes fully open to his greatness. Um, not just a brave person, but a wrong person, clearly. Because all of us, we're just paddling in the shallows of God's love and we know only a fraction of God's power and uh, his greatness is beyond description. And one day we'll have our eyes fully open to it. But if you're here today and your heart is that you might know more of it before you get into that place of great glory and revelation, then um, I think you're in the right place because that's what we want to talk about. And um, as we do that, um, Becky and I are going to share a little bit of our story um, and I have to say, it's quite unusual for us, actually. We don't tend to talk about ourselves that much. Um, as a preacher, uh, you know, if I ever come back at lunchtime and, and I'm brave enough to say to Becky, How, what did you think this morning? The one comment I'll always get w- would be, you didn't talk about yourself enough. You need to be a little, put a little bit more of yourself into that talk. So this is completely out of our comfort zone today because we're going to share quite a bit of our story. And when you do that, um, you feel a bit nervous, particularly when you've actually then written it down in a book. And the reason you feel nervous is because you think, oh, who do they think they are? They've written a book about their own lives. You know, that's, that's quite an embarrassing and, uh, oh, put it on the other side. Uh, it's quite an embarrassing and difficult things to do. But the reason that we wrote these things down was from a nudge from the Lord, but particularly not because we thought we were special, but because we realized that we're ordinary and average, and therefore, the ways in which God had shown us his, his more, and the ways in which he had used us beyond what we had ex- expected was possible, the ways in which he had helped us to step into things for which we had ruled ourselves out, we thought, actually, if he can do it with us, he can do it with anyone. And so that really was the point of, of writing these things down. And it started when I, I wrote a book called Growing in Circles. So I refer to them as the black one and the white one, so you know which is which. So the black one was called Growing in Circles because I realized that actually in the Christian life, the way that we grow is not discovering something we've never heard before, but most of the time, the way that we grow is coming back to something we've known for years but realizing it more profoundly. Does that make sense? I'm sure you'd have that, that recognition because if I say to people, what was the thing that most helped you go forward in your Christian life? People will say something like, um, it's when I realized that God loved me or when I realized I was a daughter of God or when I realized the authority that came with being a child of the King of Kings. And, and most of those things are things that we teach in Sunday school to little children, aren't they? God loves you. We are his sons and daughters, and that means that he's given us a purpose and carry the authority. So mostly what we need to do in the Christian life is discover familiar truths more profoundly. And I was teaching in that over a number of years and then realized actually that that there's a sort of circle of grace that we keep going round. And in order to really go deeper with God, you just need to keep going round that circle. And it's become a very helpful way of helping Christians who feel stuck um, work out how to go deeper into life with God. 
And then we realized that actually, in our stories particularly, and then it seemed to be resonating with lots of other people, um, a lot of people, even when they know what the cycle is, the thing that holds them back is some internal barrier in their own life. Barrier of um, their head and the way that they see things, or their heart and the way that they feel things. And so we, we wrote our testimonies into this book that um, has quite a lot of Bible teaching in there, but it's illustrated out of, well, this is what it looked like for me. Uh, and so it's really, uh, it's, it's, it's quite sort of, um, I don't know, when people pick the book up and in the contents it says, Paul's story, three chapters, Becky's story, five chapters, you'll see why. Um, it, it's sort of like, mm, who do they think they are? But those are just, I, I think, what we want to say is, we don't think we're anything at all, but we want, if we're going to talk about the goodness of God and what he can do, we can only really illustrate it out of our own lives and say, we know this to be true. Um, so if you're interested, the, the books are on, um, St. Andrew's Bookshop have provided uh, a table of books at the back, and Caroline would love to help you um, carry on your reading. But today is about more, and... Like I say, we, we probably all believe there is more, but we don't really see how we can get there. I, I probably, when I was growing up, didn't believe that there was more, um, because the church that I was in didn't have days like this and didn't speak into these sorts of issues. So I, I grew up in a very um, traditional Anglican church. Um, I often describe it as the sort of church that gets holier the closer you get to this end. Um, and the, I wouldn't have been allowed up here wearing these trousers or these shoes, and certainly you had to wear more clothes the closer you got to the top, the top table. And they had a fantastic um, strategy for keeping kids in church, which was not Sunday school, no, it was carrying things. And so from, from a very young age, when it was determined that I wasn't going to set fire to myself or anybody else, I was carrying a candle... And then when I graduated, a little bit older, I was carrying a cross, and then I carried all sorts of things over the years, things that swung and smelt, and books, and all sorts of things. And um, that church was, in lots of ways, the making of me. Um, you know, I know I joke about it, but actually, in that church, I learned that there is a God, and he has made the heavens and the earth, and he is amazing, and he is worthy of all worship. Um, I believed everything I was taught. I was confirmed at the tender age of 10. Um, I, I was completely committed. If you'd said, are you a Christian? I would have said, yes. If you'd look for the proof, it would be that I was in church at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning carrying something. But if you looked for the proof outside of that time, you might have struggled to see anything. I wasn't by any means you know, a bad lad. I think I was fine. But it... There wasn't a, wasn't a connection between my 24-7 life and my Sunday 10 a.m. life. And in some ways, it was because I was never really discipled. I, wasn't, I just wasn't taught. Um, I, for many years, this is, or I tell these stories against myself, not to embarrass that church, but for many years, I would come into the church, I would turn left into the pew, kneel down, close my eyes, count to 10, then sit back up. Because as far as I could see, that's what everybody else was doing. So it, it, it should have occurred to me that they were actually praying. Um, but for some reason, the penny never quite dropped. And so I was being disciplined or discipled into the forms without really understanding the substance. But at the same time, particularly during my early teenage years, I was beginning to hear God 
speaking directly to me through talks. I remember we had one particular firebrand curate who, who just something about him touched me. And I used to come out of sermons, go home and complain to my parents that he was talking about me again. It's like, don't think it was him. I think it might have been the Holy Spirit. But that was my Christian life. I'd never met anybody outside of that church who was a Christian, really. I knew a couple of people at school who were Christians, but they, they were very sweet girls, nothing like me, so I didn't really think we were quite in the same boat. But when I went to university, I turned up at the university and did, you know, did what I should do, enrolled at the college chapel, which was the local expression of Anglicanism, so I thought, there you go, I'm in the right place. And then went into Freshers' Week, and during Freshers' Week, all the, um, the stalls were out, and all the clubs and societies were touting for membership, and I came across this thing called the Christian Union, which I'd never heard of before. My school hadn't had one, because um, uh, there were only three of us in the, in the entire school that went to church, as far as I could work out. But the Christian Union, I thought, well, I'm a Christian, I should probably join the Union, you know, just in case the strike action or something, I don't know, solidarity with the brethren. Um, so I joined the Christian Union and discovered it wasn't what I thought at all. It was actually to do with um, meeting together to eat and read the Bible. So I thought, well, I like eating. And um, I had my confirmation Bible with me. It sounded fascinating. So I signed up and was prevailed upon to go to the Christian Union meeting. And um, I discovered at the Christian Union meeting that I had the wrong Bible. Everybody else had a different translation. I had a confirmation Bible which is basically a normal Bible, but with the pages stuck together with gold leaf. So, um, and so for the first term, I spent the entire Bible studies peeling the pages of my Bible apart. It was very embarrassing. They'd be reading something called Galatians, which I'd never heard of. It would be on page 1,000, and I'd never heard, you know, couldn't find it in the Bible. I'd always had to, the, the index at the beginning was like my favorite page of the Bible. And then I would literally peel the pages apart. So during the Bible study, I'd be like, hang on. You know, I'm just pulling all these pages apart. But as I read the Bible for the first time for myself, now remember, by this point, I've had 18 years of being in church, hearing it read every Sunday. You know, always a psalm, always an epistle, always a gospel. But as I read the Bible for myself for the first time, it just came alive. And the penny dropped. I suddenly realized who Jesus was, what all those things were about in church, that I'd been doing for all those years, suddenly got some context for it. I realized how Jesus had revealed God the Father to us and how he had taken our place and opened the way back to God by dying on the cross for us. And It just made sense. And I, I, I was a little bit sheepish because everybody else was a Christian and I'd presented myself to the Christian Union as a Christian and then discovered that I didn't have a clue and then discovered that apparently you can't become a Christian without praying a prayer. Who knew that? I'd been confirmed by a bishop. I thought that was fine. So, but apparently you have to pray a prayer. Well, I was you know, far too embarrassed to admit I'd never prayed a prayer. So I thought, well, I better you know, sort that out. So I kind of prayed the prayer by my bedside one night. And I thought, I think, we, I think we're good, aren't we, God? Are we all right? Yeah, I think so. Um, so I prayed the prayer. Just carried on. And... Not only did I get this revelation about Jesus, but I also fell in love with the Bible. And I, I devoured it. I, I couldn't, I was a student, I had nothing else to do. So I, I just couldn't stop reading the Bible. I'd read the Bible cover to cover in about six months. I read it again cover to cover in the next six months, and again, you know, the next year and the year after. I just loved reading the Bible. 
And through doing that, I think God revealed his son to me. So the God that I had known as a God who is amazing, who creates the heavens and the earth, loves us, but kind of from a distance, you know, loves us through creation and all the good things that come down through creation. The God who needs to be approached carefully, but he's actually quite a long way off. I'd realized that that God had come alongside, made himself knowable, become one of us, like a friend and a brother. And my Christian life kind of took off. By the time I got home, a couple of months later, I was a totally different person. I was probably a nightmare to have at breakfast um, because I was reading my Bible and telling everybody about my discoveries and um, probably you know, the zeal of the convert, probably the not very comfortable to live with. But I was so excited about what I'd discovered. Now, I've, I found a role in the Christian Union, and, and that, that role was um, there were a group of people there who became friends, and they were involved in sharing the gospel with um, overseas students who were in the town. And um, what we used to do was every Friday night, we would invite them to a tea party so they could practice their English. And then halfway through the evening, we would spring upon them the awful surprise. By the way, we're all Christians. Um, no, we were a bit more upfront than that. But halfway through the evening, we would say, we're, we're all Christians. That's one of the reasons we do this. We want to show you love and hospitality. And if you'd like to practice your English in a different way, you're welcome to come and read the Bible with us and we'll explain a little bit about our faith and we can just have a little conversation. And amazingly, actually, people were really up for it. So we'd often have like 40 or 50 students come and we'd split them up into groups and we'd read the Bible together. And nobody ever became a Christian. Or hardly anybody became a Christian. And I, I'd ended up leading this thing quite quickly. Um, and I was getting really frustrated because I knew from my own experience that reading the Bible had changed my life. And through reading the Bible, I'd realized who Jesus really was and my faith had come alive. So I thought, why isn't this working? Why isn't this working for other people? And we'd see one or two, but we wouldn't see much. And I think that probably sent me on a bit of a quest of asking God for more. And... Um, what happened was, this is actually just at the beginning of my second year as a student. In those days, I used to pray in the, I still do, the time-recommended horizontal position. Um, in other words, as I was going to sleep. That would be one of my main prayer times. I'd be processing the day and I'd be praying. And what happened was, over the period of about a week, four or five times during that week, something was different. The presence of God came into the room. I remember the first time it happened, I literally levered myself up to see if there was an angel in the corner or something. But I just became very aware of the presence of God. And all I can do is I could say, I, I could describe it as I was filled with a sense of peace and joy that I had never experienced before. Now, I had never heard of an experience like this Nobody had ever prayed for me. I didn't know anybody who had any experiences like this. And actually, because I was a little bit embarrassed of having come from a non-evangelical background, I kind of assumed everybody was having that experience all the time, and I was just catching up. So my insecurities coming out again. But it did mean something very special, and I would look forward to those times with God. And as I said, for four or five times, I think, over a course of about a week, I had some sort of encounter like that. I didn't really know what it meant. And because I was embarrassed about where I'd you know, come from in my faith background, I never said anything to anybody else. Wish I had done now.
but I never said anything to anybody else. But what I did notice over the next few months was a couple of changes. The first change was I realized that a lot of things I used to believe in my head, I now experienced in my heart. So for me, although I, you know, I loved the Bible, I love it still, um, the, the love of God had been a beautiful but abstract concept. But I, ga- I began to experience God's love for me. And there's a world of difference between those two. So I sometimes say that I think what was happening in that encounter is God was healing the pipe that connects my head to my heart, which is all clogged up. I, I was very unemotional, very cold and logical and rational. I was a math student, for heaven's sake. Um, and I still am, actually. I still am uh, somebody whose head rules over their heart. I'm not a very emotional person. I'm going to tell you two or three experiences I've had over the years. Those are pretty much the two or three experiences I've ever had. Um, I'm just not a very emotional person. I'm a, I'm a rational, I'm a thinker. My, my mind is stronger than, than my heart in all sorts of ways. And I think that's a gift in lots of ways. It's a, it's a strength. The other thing that happened, though, was that we carried on doing those Bible studies just as badly as we ever had done, but people started coming to faith. And over the next year and a half or so, we saw about 30 or 40 people become Christians. It's remarkable what God was doing. It wasn't just me, obviously. There were lots of other people as well. But we saw people from communist China, atheist Albania, closed North African Muslim countries. I mean, people were becoming Christians for whom it would be very dangerous for them to become a Christian. You know, there would be a spy in the group from China and two or three of them become Christians quietly and more baptized. Or they were, they were going to go back to North Africa and there's no Christian that we could connect them with within 200 miles of where they were living. You know, it, it was really remarkable what God was doing. And it was through that that I kind of got my call into, into ministry. And I thought this is actually what God has made me for and I'm meant to be using my life to build the church. But as I look back now, kind of reflecting on those experiences, what was happening was the God who made the heavens and the earth, who we approach carefully, who loves us but he's a bit distant, it feels like, made himself knowable so that we know that his love is not distant, it's actually intimate, come alongside us as a friend and a brother. But even then there's more because he wants to come inside us and transform us from within. He wants us to have the felt experience of a relationship with him. Our God is a consuming fire. And so that really, I guess, changed the trajectory of my life in all sorts of ways. Because not only was my relationship with God coming into a, maybe a more fully fledged um, shape, but my reading of the Bible started to change as well. I, I started to read the Bible in a way that would talk about here and now and us rather than then and there and them. And as I say, the Bible came alive to me. And I just want to say, I think there's been two great discoveries of my life. The first is who Jesus is. That's obviously the greatest discovery anybody can have, because when you discover who Jesus is and you give your life to him, that changes your destiny forever. But the second discovery was who I am once I have made Jesus my Lord, because that changes this life that we live until we get to the next one, and then we're the Lord forever. And so um, life for me has become an adventure with Jesus. 
And I think a lot of Christians secretly, or not so secretly, desire to be on an adventure with Jesus. So if we have the next slide, please. So this is some scriptures. So one of the things I noticed was that from the beginning, Jesus chose the disciples, not just to be with him, but also to start doing the things that he was doing. So Mark chapter 3, it says that he went up on a mountainside to pray, and he called to him those he wanted, and he called them apostles, he called them disciples, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. It's really interesting. So from the beginning, Jesus sets up a rhythm to discipleship that is not just being with him, but it's also being sent by him with his power to go and do his things. And that is a rhythm that that discipleship is all about. Probably we're often more comfortable with the intimacy, the being with, than the authority, the being sent. But actually, to grow into the more of God, we need to discover more of both. It's that that rhythm is a bit like work and rest, um, abide and go bear much fruit. Those are rhythms in the Christian life. We're meant to be with Jesus, but we're also meant to be sent by Jesus. And notice that Jesus does send them to do the things that he did from the beginning. And as we read on, we see that. So in um, Matthew chapter 9, famously Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Remember that? Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now at this point, Jesus does not realize that he's reached the end of Matthew chapter 9. He just carries on talking into Matthew chapter 10. Obviously the Bible chapter divisions were stuck in later, but if we'd taken that chapter break out, it it would read like this. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You go, I give you, faith, I give you power and authority. And then a couple of verses later, after they've all been named, it says, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of God is close at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So in other words, Jesus is saying there's a lot of need in the world. That's the harvest. When we see a lot of need in the world, we see a challenge, but Jesus sees an opportunity. And then Jesus says, and I'm going to empower my church to do my things, to go out and preach the same message I've been preaching and to go and do the same things I've been doing. I don't know at that point whether actually they'd seen the dead raised, but Jesus sent them to go off and do it. Now, sometimes people say, well, yes, but that's the apostles, isn't it? That's the first 12. They're special. We name churches after them. And I go, well, yeah, you're right, actually, except Jesus does exactly the same with the 72 in Luke. In Luke, he says, off you go, power and authority, same message about the harvest, not enough workers, here's your power and authority, off you go, heal the sick, and then they come back and they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So in other words, Jesus wants his church to go out and to do these things. And then the night before he died, as he's telling them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he says to them, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. The end of Matthew's gospel, remember, he says, go and make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's like there is a plan A and there's no plan B. The plan A is why Jesus says to the disciples, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. This is is going to be something you can't achieve simply by words alone. You're going to do it the way I did it, which is words and wonders together.
So for me, since the Bible uh, started coming alive to me in that kind of way, my, my life has been a pursuit of what does that look like and how can I step into that? And what I found really helpful the last few years was this great passage in, um, in Matthew 14 where uh, the whole walking on water thing happens. Uh, so if, you, if you've got a Bible and you want to look at it, that's really what we're going to focus on as the structure of today. In Matthew 14, just for context, um, Jesus has just heard about the death of John the Baptist. And um, so he wants to withdraw to pray. This must be um, a very difficult thing for Jesus. His cousin has just been beheaded, his forerunner. Um, and perhaps in some ways it prefigures for Jesus the cross that he knows that he's going to as well. And so Jesus withdrew. Uh, withdrew. Um, of course, the crowds follow him. Um, ministry never seems to let up. People always have needs. And he has to feed them. So we have the feeding of the 5,000. And then Jesus gets the disciples to go ahead of him so he can finally have his alone time with God. Now, what he does is he sends them across the lake. Now, the lake at this point is the Sea of Galilee. It's a very interesting lake. It's the um, second lowest in the, in the world, the lowest being um, the Dead Sea. It is quite shallow, and uh, on one side it has the coastal plains where hot air comes up. And on the other side it has mountain ranges, and down the valleys comes cold air. And when you have this combination of a shallow lake with hot air and cold air meeting, it's notorious for storms. And so storms will blow up very, very quickly, and they can be very, very strong. Uh, the disciples, many of them, of course, are fishermen, so they, they know what they're in for when they start seeing the signs. So this is what it says. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat, go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. You know, sometimes in life, you're doing exactly the right thing and everything's against you. You know, I mean, often what happens is if we think we're being buffeted and the storm's against us, we think, oh, I must be out of the will of God. You know, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Well, maybe, but quite often you're doing exactly the right thing. You just have to keep going through the storm. And it's at this point when they think, we're in a bit of trouble here, that they have a fresh encounter with Jesus. Jesus comes to them doing something they'd never seen before. Now, I would just want to say, it's so often moments of crisis when we discover more of God. It's moments of change, moments of crisis, we're a little bit unsettled by something, and then we discover more of God, and the more of God will often come to us in a way that is different from what we've seen before. And that's exactly what happens here. Now, the key thing in all of this is how do you respond when God wants to approach you in a different way from what you've seen before? So, verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. So, the first response to God coming and doing something you haven't seen before is often fear. Have you ever been afraid in church? Yeah, a few times, yeah, maybe. I've certainly been afraid in some conferences over the years when God was moving in a particular way. And sometimes people go, well, if, it, if I'm afraid, it can't be God because I've known God all my life. He's really nice. 
Um, I'm confident he loves me. And um, fear feels wrong. Now, I just want to point out the fallacy of that particular statement. If God turns up, fear is an entirely appropriate response. You can see where I'm going with this, can't you? Have you ever read of things that happened in the Bible when angels turn up? So what is the first thing an angel always says? Do not be afraid. Why is that? Because angels are slightly terrifying. It's because suddenly your world has become a lot bigger. Everything you thought you knew is, turns out to be just a fraction of everything that actually is, and your eyes are opened to something, and the something is awe-inspiring and fear-inducing for us small and fallible people. So to dismiss something and say, that can't be God because I feel uncomfortable, I'm feeling a degree of fear, is, is really to rule yourself out of almost everything the Bible talks about with regard to the more of God. Now, sometimes um, people do feel uncomfortable with, you know, with a new experience, of course, and we'll talk a little bit in a moment about how we have to help each other over that and how God particularly wants to help us over that degree of being uncomfortable. It's interesting here, actually, that the disciples go a further step, um, and this is one I really recommend we don't take. So when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, in other words, doing something they'd never seen him do before, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. So they weren't just terrified, they also misattributed what was going on. It's very offensive to Jesus, really, isn't it? You know, Jesus, their Lord and Saviour, their Master, is now being labelled as a spirit of an altogether different kind. It's a ghost, they said. Now, it is the first watch of the morning, shortly before dawn, and maybe we can excuse it slightly that they, they couldn't, it was a bit hazy, perhaps they couldn't quite see in the, you know, the early morning's light. But so often we do misattribute what's happening. You know, something will start moving in our life or in, in, in the church or in somebody else, and we go, that's not God, because I feel afraid. Well, I feel afraid, totally understandable. That's not God. Quite a dangerous statement. Not only are you ruling yourself out of being able to enter into the experience, you're potentially actually saying that something of God is not of God. So we just need to be a bit careful about not going there. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, when we get to that point, Jesus will always respond because it is him and it is his love for us. So in verse 27, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Actually, there's a lovely bit of uh, parallelism here because they were afraid they said it was a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Jesus says, take courage. It's actually me. Don't be afraid. It's like he completely deals with everything that they've expressed that's been recorded for us by Matthew. Take courage. It is me. Don't be afraid. So the first thing is that whenever something happens that we haven't experienced before, whenever we're stepping into something that leaves us feeling a little bit vulnerable and insecure, Jesus will give you reassurance. It is me. Take courage. Don't be afraid. Now, that reassurance could come in all sorts of ways. It could come, actually, through reading the Bible. I've lost count of the number of times where I've had an experience, gone back to the Bible and seen the experience in the Bible and thought, oh, okay, I never kind of read that like that before. 
Sometimes it will be the, the, the gentle whisper of God in your heart. So you might be afraid, but at the same time you might go, but I know this is God. Sometimes you might hear God give you real reassurance. Sometimes you might see the fruit in somebody else's life or hear the testimony of somebody saying, I didn't really know what that was about, but this is what I'm experiencing and this is the good fruit that it's born. So there'll always be reassurance from Jesus. But what I really want to focus on today is what happens next. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, my Bible, and maybe yours, heads this paragraph, Jesus walks on water. This is not a day about Jesus walking on water. Jesus walking on water is not news, really, is it? It's, not, I mean, it's great. Jesus does a load of amazing things. We'll just add it to the list. This is a day about Peter's bold question, Lord, if it's you, can I come and join you? Can I step into the things that you're doing? This is what this is about today. And just think about it for a moment. I mean, Peter. Peter is as often known for his failures as for his successes. He's as often known for his weaknesses as his strengths. We often talk about Peter in terms of I don't know, he's a bit of a comedy character. He, he opens his mouth and speaks without thinking, or he rushes in, and there's pros and cons in all of that. But Peter is this larger-than-life character and also very, very aware of his own sin, which he is later in the story going to compound by denying Jesus three times. Uh, even into the New Testament era of the early church, Peter gets it wrong and has to be rebuked by the apostle Paul. You know, Peter is like highs and lows, Mr. Inconsistent. When Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you, there are a load of reasons where Jesus could go, like, really, Peter? Yeah, Jesus could simply have said, here I am, son of God, I made it, I can walk on it. How about you? Or he could have said, Peter, with all of your faults and failings, you confessed to me not that long ago that you're a sinful man, told me to get away from you. I know what you're going to do in a couple of years, when it comes to me going to the cross, you're going to deny me three times. You're fickle. What I love about this passage is that's not how Jesus responds. And if your heart today is, I'd like to know more of God, then I'm hoping that you can hear what Jesus says to Peter. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus simply says, come. Really simple, really powerful. And anybody whose heart is to step into more with God, I think Jesus is still saying that. Come. Don't rule yourself out. Just come. God is no respecter of persons. And, and I would say, by the grace of God, both Becky and I have been helped over things that would stop us from stepping out and responding to that and that's what we want to share so whatever your particular barrier that says to, to you well when Jesus says come he really didn't mean it or at least he wouldn't mean it for me this is what today is about now for me the biggest barrier is going to be the head for others it will be different so if we look at the, the next slide what would stop Peter from getting out of the boat and joining in with Jesus well there, let's Acknowledge from the start there were 11 other chickens in the boat. 
who didn't get out. So we love the fact that Peter does give it a go. That's, that is the best thing about Peter. He's always going to give it a go. He just takes Jesus at his word. But what did he have to overcome to get there? Why didn't the 11 all go, me too, Jesus? Because you know Jesus would have said, yeah, sure, as many as you want, come. Well, what would they have to overcome? Well, firstly, the head. I don't know about you, but if I'm in a boat and I'm looking at water, I'm not much of a sailor, but even I know, boat, buoyant, water, not so much. So if I'm going to step out, there's a lot of things I'm going to need my head to be assured of, because I, I, I am probably going to struggle to do that, let's be honest. I'm going to demand proof. Now, that is actually an orientation to life that many people have. I certainly have it. Um, I've lost count of the number of times over the years where I say things like, I just can't get my head around that, because that's what I want to do. I want to understand it. Now, under understanding is a good thing, but sometimes understanding can flip over into a demand for understanding, which is inappropriate with a God who is beyond understanding. Are you with me on that? His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They are higher than us. So often, understanding can be a box in which we limit God. And we say, that's where you belong. Don't step out of that. That's all I'm going to allow you to be in my life, in this box. And I had to have God blow those categories apart in order for me to, to really let him be who he is and me marvel at it. Peter had to get over that. There were probably others in the boat who, who they, you know, perhaps their heads weren't the issue. Maybe it wasn't the dominant rational mind. Maybe their problem was the wounded, fearful heart. That perhaps in their experience of life, they had had wounds which had left them basically not volunteering, not stepping forward, not being first. Perhaps they would just generally wait for other people to show them that it's safe because their experience of life is when you do step out, when you do take a risk, you could get hurt. And their experiences of hurt would be something they would need to overcome. It would be to do with trust. It would be to do with security. And that's very much Becky's story. Now, as it happens in our marriage, we are fairly extreme versions of those two. Um, this is not a male or female thing. I have met many, many women who would go, yep, totally, head person. And many, many, women, many, many men who will go, yep, I'm, I'm very much the heart person. Um, sometimes it happens in the marriage that you marry, marry somebody who's opposite. Sometimes you're a little bit of a mixture. Sometimes in life we, we kind of oscillate between the two. Actually, all of us are both. It's really important you know that. I do have a heart. And as you will discover later, Becky does have a brain. Um, but it just helps in telling our stories to actually point out for us head and heart were the issues. Now, just out of interest, how many of you would, from even what you've heard already, will go, yeah, I'm probably more of a head over heart kind of person? Show of hands. Bless you. Amen. I see that hand. That's good. Um, and the others? Heart? Yeah. Anybody not? Or any? Or just not sure. Okay. Yeah. Anybody want to abstain? That's the obviously the abstentions will take as people who aren't quite sure. So let me tell you a little bit about my journey before we come to coffee. So for me, you've heard a lot about um, you know you've heard my kind of initial uh, experience of encountering the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that really saved me 
was Bible memory. Because I used to do, because remember I told you I loved the Bible, so one of the first things I set to when I, when I got my faith going was um, Bible memory. I was used to have these things, the navigators produced this thing called the topical Bible memory system. And it was like a little card about the size of a calling card or something, business card, and on it would be printed Bible verses. And on one side it would be the NIV, the other side it would be the King James. So I've never read the King James in my life, and yet I know all sorts of Bible verses in the King James. But one of the verses that I memorized, probably one of the first verses I memorized, was Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, which goes something like this. And some of you might join in, actually, as we go through, because you memorized it as well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will guide and direct your path. Wow, what a church. Jonathan, Juliet, what a great job you've done here. Obviously, all those people have come from St. Andrew's Kenilworth. Thank you for them. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really good. It's impressive, actually. Some of you, like me, you memorized that. I wonder if you've ever thought about what that actually says, because to somebody like me, when I realized what that verse says, I thought, I am in real trouble. Because it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, which, as I say, is kind of underdeveloped in my life, and lean not on your own understanding. I was really convicted by that because my entire approach to life was always lean on your own understanding. Try and get your head around it. Try and understand it. Try, you know, to a certain extent, being controlled through understanding how things work. And so I, I realized I'm going to have to put understanding on the side slightly. Now, one of the things that really helped me take that step was... Um, learning to speak in tongues. Um, now, tongues is very controversial in the Christian life sometimes, and it really doesn't need to be. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells it, uh, describes it as the least of all the gifts. He'd much rather us do lots of other things. But he does say it's quite a useful gift. It is particularly useful for those of us who are head-orientated, and it was powerfully useful in my own life, and I'll explain why. So, after the experiences I told you about. Um, very quickly, I went on to theological college. I've been like a Dane for 95 years or something ridiculous. You know, I went straight out of university into theological college, um, then got ordained. I've never had a real job, so clearly can't relate to anybody. Um, but when I was there, I, I quickly fell into the clutches of other people for the first time who had had similar experiences to me. And this is around about the time that the New Wine Network was starting, and a number of them came from that. And um, they quickly realized that theologically, I was beginning to think in very similar ways, even though I'd never been taught, except you know, just reading the Bible for myself. And I'd had experience of the power of the Holy Spirit, and they essentially produced what was for me a discipleship program of, Let me just, let's talk about this, let's go out and do it together, and then let's come reflect on what we've done. I was learning how to do the stuff. And um, a particular friend that was also very powerful in Becky's life, as you'll hear later, a chap called John, um, realized I was like one of them and um, decided uh, he would take me under his wing and said, do you speak in tongues? And I told him about my university horizontal prayer experience and said, well, during those experiences, after two or three days of them happening, I thought, I've heard in the Bible about tongues when the Holy Spirit turns up and I'll, I'll try and speak. And I said, I, I did that, I made a couple of sounds, and I thought, no, that's just me. 
Um, and in his very pastoral way, he says, of course, it's just you, you idiot. Have you not read? The, uh, they spoke as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. In other words, he says there's a partnership. It's exactly the same with healing. You want to you see the sick healed? You have to pray for them, and then God will do his bit, and the sick might get healed. I thought, okay, I can kind of see that. So he said, you, if you're waiting to be possessed, and then you know, it's all going to come out, he says, very few people have that experience. Some people do. They can't help themselves. It bubbles up. They can't stop themselves. He said, for most people, and I think he read me quite well at this point, he said, for most people, it's an entirely unemotional process, and it is like the development of a language that you will probably start off with a few you know, baby sounds, but if you learn to let go and let God, it will develop into a language. And then he started talking me through some of the passages in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 14 is the obvious one. And it says in there that whoever prophesies speaks from God to men. So it's a, it's a communication from God. But whoever speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God. Uh, it's a, a vertical communication. And it, it therefore is a language of, of prayer and praise because it's from us to God. Okay, that makes sense. He said it's a good gift. It's what Paul teaches. Um, whoever speaks in tongues edifies themselves. This is how you build yourself up spiritually. It's quite a good thing to do. Um, but then it also says in that passage, when I speak in tongues, my mind is unfruitful. That's why he says in the passage, I'd love all of you to speak in tongues, but not in church. Just in church, two or three of you, and let's have some interpretation. Because it's not a blessing to see anybody gabbling on. It's building them up, but it's not building others up. I thought, okay, well, that also makes sense. So he said, well, let's have, let's have a go. Um, I'll speak in tongues, you join in. So very helpful. Um, but, you know, he, he sort of said, you've just got to get over the sound barrier, start making some noises. So I, you know, he prayed, Lord, help us to praise you better. He prayed for me. I started to speak, and he started encouraging, and I started making some sounds. And gradually I realized, actually, I don't need to think about where this is going. I can think about something else, an entirely different part of my brain is kind of now making something that's flowing. It, it wasn't fluent, let's be honest, um, but I certainly wasn't making it up. You know, I know the old joke is like, you just basically name Japanese motorcycles as quick as you can, you know, Kawasaki, Kawasaki, Kamehameha Honda, you know, that sort of thing. It's like, <laughs> it sounds like that, but you're not thinking like that. The whole point is you kick your brain to one side. You're not out of control, you're not possessed, you're just basically saying, my mind doesn't need to understand this. Another part of my brain is just going to let go and let God do whatever he wants. I turn the tap on and off. That's the truth. It's really simple. The only problem is, how do you know that what you're saying isn't complete and utter gibberish? The answer is, you don't. Your mind is unfruitful unless somebody else interprets, and then you've only got their word for it, haven't you? So I thought, well, this is a bit strange. And he, he basically said to me, you've had like, no emotional experience of this, have you? I go, nope, I have literally nothing's happening. I am a brick, feeling nothing. He goes, oh, it's fine, it's fine. You know, practice in the shower, probably, so people don't think you're a nutter, you know, not down the street. But just, just five minutes a day, just flew it. And God will somehow show to you that this actually is a gift that he can use. Um, and by the way, uh, he said, I'm going to speak in a university college tomorrow to a Christian union. Would you like to come along and be my ministry team? I thought, yeah, great, lovely. So, 
So the next day, I rock up with him and we go off and uh, do this ministry team and, and uh, he speaks about the Holy Spirit um, and then, right, now we're going to pray the Holy Spirit will come and we're going to pray for each other. Um, or rather, he said, actually, Paul and I are going to pray for you. Oh, great. Um, and he said, we're going to put some music on. So this is back in the old days, so we had a like, ghetto blaster and cassette tape, you know, probably eight track, I don't know. Um, so now, that's what I call worship one, back in the day. And so the room is filled with the glorious sounds of Graham Kendrick. And um, he said, I want you all to stand up, close your eyes, hold your hands out like you're going to receive a gift. It's good new wine theology. And then uh, Paul and I are going to go around and we're going to pray for you. Great, okay, excellent. I haven't got a clue, by the way. I've never done this before. So quickly, he starts praying for people. He's got, yeah, praying for somebody. And then he sees, he's praying for somebody else. And he sees somebody else. He's got like, yeah, a foot on that one. Um, and he, he, he said to me, Just basically, when it comes to prayer, go wherever you see the Holy Spirit's working. Fantastic. What if you haven't got a clue what that looks like? (laughs) So I'm kind of like, so after a while, I notice he goes like this. And and he's kind of like throwing his head in the direction of this girl who, when I looked her, I thought, well, she does seem to be reacting a little bit differently from some of the other people. I couldn't really describe it, but I don't quite know what I'm looking for, but okay, I'll wander over and have a quick pray. Um, and I just went over, he'd said to me, go over and just bless whatever you see God doing. You know, pray what God puts in your heart. And then he said, oh, and by the way, when you run out of prayers, use that gift of tongues you don't believe in. Well, I ran out of prayers really quickly because I've never done this before. Um, and I'm thinking, oh, no, all I've got left is that gift of tongues I don't believe in. And I thought, oh, this is so embarrassing. So um, it's quite loud. So I thought, she can't hear me. Nobody else can hear me. I'll just look like I know what I'm doing, even though I don't. And I, I, the first time I ever prayed in tongues was directed to my left armpit, because I, I'm so embarrassed about this. Um, but this is no word of a lie. The moment, you know, I've got a hand on her, blessing what God's doing, she can't hear me. The moment I started using that gift of tongues I did not believe in, she fell to the floor and proceeded to flop like a fish for about 10 minutes. Just all, it just, you ever seen people kind of like doing that sort of you know, body action where they flip themselves along the floor? It's like that. And I, I thought, what just happened there? Across the room, my friend John kind of went like that. It's sort of like, yeah, you got one, excellent. Um, so I just thought, well, I, just, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'll follow her down, make it look like I do know what I'm doing, and pray for her. Now, after about say about 10 minutes or so, she kind of like, oh, you know, got up and she said, that was amazing, that was amazing. I thought, good, because <laughs> I wasn't entirely convinced it was. But she said, that was amazing. What happened was, as you were praying for me, I went back into a memory and I remembered that um, when I was a child and my father was teaching me to swim, he taught me to swim by throwing me into the deep end. And uh, when, an, uh, you know, when I didn't kind of like you know, float he would fish me out and say, we'll give it another go, another day. She said, I've always had a really bad relationship with my father. I thought, go figure. Um, And she'd just become a Christian, and she said, "Um, you know, I've become a Christian recently. I'm finding it really difficult to trust God or believe that he loves me. Okay, I can see possibly a connection here between your relationship with your earthly father and your relationship with your heavenly father. She said, but actually, when you were praying... In that picture, I, did, um, I went back into that memory, but this time Jesus was in the water with me, holding me up. 
And it was very healing for her. It wasn't, wasn't anything more than that particularly, but she left that meeting, went off and phoned her dad. She hadn't done in years. She'd always phone her mum, but she went and phoned her dad. And then I saw her about a year later, and her faith was kind of flying, and her relationship with her dad was much restored. They often say to people, who do you think that experience was for? Well, clearly for her, can you also see how that was an experience for me as well? So what I'd learned through that experience was God will do things that I do not understand if I will trust him because I see it in the Bible and I step out into that. And that's part of the more of God. It's learning to trust God, let him be God, and saying, Lord, I'm going to test this. I'm going to test to see if it bears good fruit. I'm going to test to see if it lines up with your word. But I'm not going to limit you by what I can understand. Uh, I'd love to sort of tell you more. The danger of telling you more is you think, oh, wow, you know, he's had so many experiences of God. Actually, very rarely do I have great experiences of God. Like most speakers, when I turn up, I tell you my two or three best stories. But actually, normally, it's the day-to-day, it's the same as everybody else. I sometimes sense God's presence when we're praying or in worship or if I'm in private prayer. But actually, I am a very unemotional, unexperiential kind of person. Part of why why I'm here today is to say, if you're like me, particularly if you're a head-orientated person, don't rule yourself out. You don't think that experience of God is just for the emotional people. Don't think that you know, God is going to pass you by. He will meet you in a way that's appropriate for you. But he wants all of his children to know him intimately. He wants all of his children to have experience of his power. He wants all of us to be on a journey into more. Now, we're going to have lots of time today to pray and to encourage each other in all sorts of ways. Um, But we are also going to have lots of coffee, you'll be pleased to know. So just before we come to coffee, um, love just at this point to give God permission to do whatever he wants to do today without being afraid because we're in a safe place and looking around, most people look reasonably nice. So um, if it's comfortable for you and you'd like to do so, we won't stand for too long, but it's often easier to stand just a different posture. So would you like to stand And without too many words, why don't we just, it's not about me and Becky speaking today, it's not about Martin and the team leading worship. This day, I hope, is about you and God. And he knows you and he loves you and he's got a perfect plan for your life. He's got good gifts to give to his children. So without too many words, again, it is helpful, close your eyes. Open your hands to indicate openness. And then, in whatever way is right for you, mind and heart, say to God, Lord, here I am. Help me today to open myself more fully to your presence and power 
to your love and your peace. More of you in my life. That's all I ask, Lord. More of you. Help me, to, help me to identify and take down any barriers that I might erect. Holy Spirit, fill us today. May your word come alive to us and may we come alive to you. That even in these moments as we stand here, you, you might just sense the presence of God. For some, it's a settled sense of peace. For some, it can be sensation of power or heat or tingling for some it's a, a deep knowledge and conviction of God's love and I want to say a couple of things one is you don't have to have those experiences Jesus said how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him so if you ask, he's already doing something. But if there is an experience, it's only natural. Our bodies always react to a deep emotional stimulus. That's why lie detectors work. That's how you can tell if you're falling in love. So it is to be welcomed. All you need to do is just say, thank you, Lord. More. Thank you, Lord. It's a little sign and confirmation. It's not meaningful in itself, but it's not a bad thing. More of you in our lives, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Now, after many years of experience, I, can, I have now learned to see ways where God is obviously and evidently at work. So, Lord, I bless what you're doing. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your love. More of you, Lord. Pray that today would be like soaking in a warm bath. It would just it would penetrate through to the deepest part of our lives. So that we can say with Solomon, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waters. All of your breakers have gone over me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. 
Amen. Amen. Great. Well,